What does it mean that, that Jesus ascended? That's a question. I don't think you're foolish. I, I know you know what ascended means. We, we get what it means that he ascended. He went up, right? He rose. He up. He went up. He ascended. We, we know that's what happened to Jesus because Luke tells us that's what happened to Jesus. When you look at the very end of Luke's gospel account, Luke 24, verses 50 and 51, Luke tells us this, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He ascended. He was carried up into heaven. Same Luke says at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, same writer, he says, And and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So we get that. Jesus ascended. He went up. The angel in Acts 1.11 says he was taken up into heaven. So is that all the ascension is? Jesus suffered, he died, he descends into the realm of the dead, he is resurrected, and 39 days later, he just rises up into heaven, and then that's it? Is that, he's just sitting there at God's right hand, knitting and playing the harp? waiting a few thousand years to come back? Is that what the ascension is? I think you know it's not. You know, as as we have been studying the Apostles' Creed and looking to God's Word to better understand these doctrines, if there's anything that any of us have learned, is that there is a lot more to the story than just that little line. Isn't there? Jesus is not doing nothing in heaven. In fact, what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus had to ascend into heaven to finish what he started on earth. I think sometimes we think of the, the ascension into heaven is like after a, a horse race, the, the horse goes into the winter circle and he gets the, the flowers. Well, that's not it. It's, this is not a postscript. Oh yeah, this also happened. It's not an addendum to Jesus' ministry. The ascension is the crowning moment of his earthly ministry. In fact, what Jesus accomplishes in heaven is so important that if you you grew up following the old church calendar, you'll know that the day of ascension is one of the most celebrated feasts of the year. In many countries around the world, especially countries that have at least more of a, a traditional or liturgical uh, church history about them. Ascension Day is an official government holiday. It rivals Christmas. They celebrate Ascension Day in Indonesia. So what's so what's so important that we would have a follow? Not us, but why would other Christians have a holiday surrounding this? What's what's so important? What happened? When Jesus ascended into heaven. Well, remember, we worship Jesus because he's Messiah. Okay, so this is is really important. Getting back to the the basics of Christianity, we worship Jesus because he's Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three offices, three 
groups of, of people who received anointing. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. And kings were anointed. The promised Messiah who was to come was to be a prophet and a priest and a king all at once. And that threefold office of Messiah is particularly important when it comes to the ascension. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at how the ascension is important in each of these offices that Jesus holds. What does the ascension mean for his office, his role as a prophet? What does it mean for who he is as a priest? What does it mean for who he is as a king? Let's start with, with the Ascension as the long-awaited prophet. Now, Moses, we saw this if you were in Sunday school this morning. Uh, we were looking at the book of Acts. We saw Moses had foretold of a prophet who would one day come after him. And this prophet would be the one who spoke the very word of God. We see this prophecy of the coming prophet in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. I'll put that on the screen for you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so from that time on, prophet after prophet arose amongst God's people, each one pointing forward ahead to that anointed prophet who was to come. Until finally, the anointed prophet arrived, and it was Jesus. And it became undeniable throughout Jesus' life that he was that prophet. God even said he is that prophet. In, in Matthew 17, verse 5, in Jesus' transfiguration, you have Moses is there and Elijah is there. God is there. The, few of the disciples are there, and they hear God speak. And God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did Moses say? There will be a prophet from among you. It is to him you shall listen. The prophet comes, and God says, here he is. Listen to him. And as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you see Jesus' prophetic work. He spoke the word of God with authority. That's something that prophets do. He foretold the future. He saw inside men's and women's hearts. He performed miracles and signs and, and wonders greater than any other prophet had ever before him. He was and is, as the prophet Isaiah had foretold, the long-awaited one on whom the Spirit rests. Now, up to this point in history, up to Jesus, every prophet before Jesus died and stayed dead, except one prophet. Up to this point, the most prominent, well-known prophet in the history of redemption was the prophet Elijah. Elijah brought down fire from the sky. Elijah made it stop raining. Elijah made it start raining. He multiplied small amounts of food. He even raised up a child who had died. Most importantly, he spoke God's word to the people in authority who were leading God's people astray. And as a result, Elijah's life was constantly in danger. If there was a prophet who foreshadowed what Jesus' prophetic ministry would be like, that prophet was going to be Elijah. And Elijah never died. We read about how 
Elijah departed from this earth this morning. Elijah ascended into heaven in a fiery chariot in a whirlwind. Here's what I want you to take away from that story that we heard Bob read for us this morning. Elijah, that great prophet, was taken up into heaven, and his protege, Elisha, who saw him being taken up, received a double portion of the Spirit as a result. And then Elisha continued Elijah's ministry. Now, so we have that. Hold that in your uh, in your head right here for just a moment. Now, if Jesus was going to be this long-awaited prophet, the anointed prophet that all the other prophets were, were pointing to, he was going to have to be greater than Elijah. He had to be. Anything Elijah did, Jesus had to do in spades. He had to do it better. He had to do it more exceptionally. He had to do it more completely. If Elijah ascended, and as a result, a double portion of the Spirit was sent to Elisha, then Jesus had to ascend and send a greater measure of the Spirit to more people than just one. And that's what Jesus did. When Jesus ascended into heaven, we see this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when he ascended into heaven, he sent the Spirit to his disciples. And the disciples didn't just get a double portion of the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit, Luke tells us. They were filled with the Spirit. And the outpouring of the Spirit was so great that wherever the disciples proclaimed the gospel, the Spirit would fill those people of God's choosing and they'd receive the gospel. And wherever those people took the gospel, the Spirit went before them and on and on and on to you and me this morning. We're still receiving the blessings of that first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we will continue to be blessed by the Spirit's presence with us throughout eternity. Jesus went over and above what Elijah did, the prophet. In true prophetic fashion, Jesus had already told us that this was what was going to happen. He had foretold this day when he told his disciples that, that he would one day leave them and he would go to the Father. And then, as a result of his ascending to the Father, he would send his Spirit. We saw this back in John's Gospel. John chapter 14. This is near the end of Jesus' earthly life. Shortly before his crucifixion, he's there with his disciples, encouraging them. He tells them, John 14, verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Going to the Father. That's, that's ascension language, isn't it? Where's the Father? He's in heaven. How do you go to the Father? You, go, you ascend into heaven. The Father's dwelling place is there. That's where Jesus is going. He's ascending into heaven. And, and Jesus continues in verse 16. I will go to the Father, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. That's the promise right there. Spirit's coming. I'm going to the Father. I'm sending the Spirit. That's what Jesus told the apostles would happen. 
And then the day of Pentecost comes, the Spirit is poured out, and this is how Peter, who was there, when the Spirit is poured out, this is how he reports of what happened. Acts chapter 2. Peter's explaining here for us what was happening when the Spirit was poured out. He says, Jesus, God raised up, there's resurrection, that was last week, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, there's your ascension language again. Jesus was exalted. He ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He was lifted up. He ascended. And having received from the Father of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Spirit's been poured out as a result of what? Jesus' ascension. So Jesus, the anointed prophet, multiplied his ministry through his ascension by sending his spirit. So he's a greater prophet than he ever could have been if he had stayed. Ministry is multiplied. Jesus also ascended as the anointed priest. I told you he had to ascend as the prophet, as a priest, and as a king. Here we are on the priest now, if you're taking notes. Jesus ascended as the anointed priest. Now priests... In the Old Testament, had the res- responsibility of interceding before God on behalf of the people. That was their job. And they, they went the other way too. They went from God to the people. They were, they were mediators. The priests were also the men assigned with the duty of making atonement for the sins of the people. We, we thought about reading Leviticus 16 today, but I changed my mind. It's, it's, it's long, but I would encourage you to read it this week. And In Leviticus chapter 16, we see how this atonement takes place. So Moses is writing this for us, and he tells us about Aaron, who's the the high priest. And Aaron first has to kill a bull, and then take the bull's blood into the presence of God in that earthly tabernacle there. And remember that the earthly tabernacle... That, that, that what would become the temple is an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. It's a shadow of the temple of God in heaven. So Aaron takes the blood from the bull. He sprinkles it around the altar to make atonement for his own sin. Then he goes back, he kills a goat, and he takes the blood from the goat inside that same place in the presence of God, in the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain. And he sprinkles the blood of the goat on the mercy seat, and that blood is for the sins of the people. And then he comes back out, he washes, he goes through a cleansing ceremony, and then he burns those offerings. And all of that is, is in one package, the atoning work of the priest. And that's a very condensed version. But this long, drawn-out process is necessary for the high priest to make atonement for himself and for the sins of Israel. And the high priest had to do that every single year. And every year, the priests had to mediate the old covenant to the people as well. What that means, they did, is they took the law of God and they read it to the people. They read it out loud to God's people. Reminding God's people of what God had told them. Now, now just as there was a a long-awaited anointed prophet, there was also a long-awaited anointed priest. So we, we understand what the priesthood was, but they... They understood that there, would, there was a priest to come, a greater high priest to come. We know that there would be a new high priest because there was a promised new covenant. The old priesthood 
mediated the old covenant, a new priesthood had to mediate the new covenant. This new covenant would not need the law repeatedly read year after year to the people, and it would not need repeated sacrifices year after year. The new covenant, Jeremiah says, would not be like the old covenant. Let me read for you Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Regarding this new covenant, the Lord says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A new type of priest is needed for that covenant. An eternal priest. And it is Jesus who fulfills that role when he ascends on high. Did you know that? If you've ever read the book of Hebrews and wondered what is the book of Hebrews about, it's just that. The entire book of Hebrews is about Jesus' ascension as our high priest. And how Jesus enters into the most holy place. Into the presence of God and makes atonement for our sins with his blood, and then mediates the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 7, you read this for us. Hebrews 7, 23 and following. The former priests were many in number. So that's the old priesthood. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. He's talking about Jesus here. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted, there's our ascension language there, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, and what the author's telling us right here, this is the point of the entire argument. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. The point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Jesus had to ascend into that high holy place in order to make atonement for our sin. He had to ascend to intercede for us. He had to ascend to be our mediator. Jesus had to ascend to do the work of the promised eternal high priest. He had to ascend for our sins to be forgiven. Are you seeing that? Just to, just to bring it down? And there's this lingering question that I think a lot of us have. 
Why Jesus? Why is it that after Jesus' resurrection, why didn't he just stay on earth? Think about some of the advantages of that. Why didn't he just stay with his disciples? Right? If Jesus wanted people to believe that he was the Messiah, why not, instead of appearing to just 500 people, as Paul says he did, why not stay on earth forever and appear to thousands of people throughout the ages, millions and millions of people by now, right? 2,000 years, a man can get around. A lot of people could have seen him. If Jesus is bringing restoration to all things, why did he have to leave the earth to do it? Well, Jesus himself told us in the book of Luke, this actually wouldn't be as effective as we might at first think. In the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus, Saunders pointed back to this story a few weeks ago, but the, the rich man who's on the, on the dark side of Sheol, he's, he's being tormented and he's begging Abraham to send Lazarus, this poor man who is in, on the paradise side of Sheol, he's begging Abraham, send Lazarus to the brothers, to his brothers, to warn them about their pending torment and death. Do you remember that story? Do you remember what Abraham says? He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, so if a man was walking around the earth, just think about this. I mean, this let's be real. If a guy was walking the earth and he's claiming to be the resurrected Jesus, just based on any of our cynicism, except for the people that follow cults, most of us have this natural cynicism about us, which is kind of protects us from false teaching. And if we were to see this man, it probably wouldn't really be any more convincing than reading about the man who rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Like we would have serious doubts if a man said he's 2,000 years old, Right? So there's that, that's speculative, but, but more substantially, if Jesus had stayed on earth instead of ascending, our sins would not be atoned for. That's what's happening here. In order to make atonement, in order for our sins to be forgiven, Jesus, Jesus didn't just have to die on the cross, he had to do that, but then he had to enter into the highest heavens, into the holy of holies of that eternal temple of God, in order to make atonement for our sins. Jesus' work on the cross could not be completed until he ascended. And only once he ascended could he make atonement for our sins and then begin to intercede on our behalf. He could not be that eternal anointed high priest if he had not ascended. Not to mention, if he had stayed on earth, as we just saw, his spirit would not be with us. The spirit would not have been poured out. And it's through the spirit that the law of God, the righteousness of God, righteousness of God is written on our hearts. Remember that new covenant promise? That comes through the spirit. So to be the mediator of that new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah, Jesus had to ascend. Jesus ascends as the anointed prophet, and he sends the Spirit. 
He ascends as the anointed priest, and he makes atonement for our sins. Lastly, Jesus ascended on high as king in order to begin his reign as the Christ, the Messiah. So remember, there's a long-awaited prophet. We've talked about him. There was a long-awaited priest, and there was a long-awaited king. The king, we understand, was the one who would come from David's line and reign forever. God promised King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made this promise to King David. He said, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now the king, that promised king who would rule forever, that's Messiah. That's the Christ. But this king would not just be king over Israel. Israel was an earthly kingdom, a temporal kingdom. The king who was to come was to be king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God is over all things, not just that little plot of land between Egypt and Syria. King over all things means he is the king of Israel and the king of Egypt and the king over Syria and the king over all the kings over all the earth. Also means that he is king of all the cosmos as well. He's the king of the unseen things. He's the king of the realm of the dead. He's the king over the spiritual rulers, over the principalities and the realm of heaven. Now, to be king over all that, he must reign from on high. He must ascend, right? Not just to the top of Mount Zion there in Jerusalem, but to the top of the heavenly Mount Zion. He must ascend in the highest heavens and sit at the right hand of God in order to be over all things. Psalm 110. We've seen this before. Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most repeated psalm throughout the whole New Testament. This is what Psalm 110 says about this promised king. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That, that promise right there, that foretelling, that's what the long-awaited Messiah had to do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Acts 1.9 describes Jesus' ascension like this. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud took him out of their sight. Now, now for someone to ride on the clouds into the heavens, to be presented before God Almighty, and to there become king over all, that should ring a bell for us, because we've read something that sounds like that a whole bunch when we've been studying Matthew. In our study of Matthew, we've read... Daniel 7, probably a dozen times now. But let's look at it again. 
Daniel chapter 7. We cannot contemplate the glory of Christ too many times. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's the clouds of heaven there, there came one like a son of man. Who was Jesus? He's described himself as the son of man. So there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, Yahweh, God Almighty, eternal God, and was presented before him. Jesus ascended on the clouds of heaven, didn't he? That's a clue to us of what happened when Jesus got to heaven. When he got there, Jesus, the one like a son of man, ascended on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, verse 14 now, and to him that king was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. What did God promise David? Your kingdom would be forever. This king's dominion will be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the eternal kingdom that Jesus received when he ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. The highest power, the highest authority. But he had to ascend in order to receive this kingdom. The ascension is important. His ascension is the, the crown him with many crowns moment of Messiah. In, in becoming Messiah. Now, with the ascension of Jesus, the prophet, we have been given the Spirit. And with the, the ascension of Jesus as high priest, our sins have been atoned for. So, so, so far for us, as we've looked to this, every work of Jesus that we've studied has had at least some benefit to us. They've had something to do with us. After all, we're his people. So what does the ascension of Jesus as king have to do with us? Well, let me, let me read for you an excerpt from Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church. So in this prayer, Paul wants the church to know just how important Jesus' ascension as king is. So look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul prays that the, that the Ephesians, this church, would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. There's king language there. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's that ascension language. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There's your Daniel 7 language. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. In the age to come. He's saying to them, to this church, he says, you share in his reign. There is, there's an inheritance for you in the reign of Christ. And Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that you would know it at the very core of who you are. That you would, that you would know his reign. But look how extensive this reign is. It's above all rule, it's above all authority, it's above all power, every dominion, above every name that has ever been named forever, and will be ever named. There will never, ever be anyone who has more authority than what Jesus has been given now, already. 
And we get that, right? Daniel 7. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But what Paul says next is what should cause us some pause. Verse 22, and he, God, put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, King Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So all things have been put underneath Jesus Christ, right? But we saw that already. There's no authority anywhere that is not subject to Christ. Everything has been put underneath Jesus' feet. Do you see that? Now, just look with me. If Jesus had been, has been seated above all things and all things are under his feet and the church is his body, then those feet... See where we're going? Those feet, the body's feet, those feet are likened to the church. They are a a body part of the ruling Messiah. That's why Paul tells the Roman church, God will soon crush Satan underneath what? Underneath your feet. When he says your feet, he means Christ's feet. But since the church is the body of Christ, well, you're starting to see the connection, aren't you? Right? Here's what I want you to see. Christ is ruling over the highest heights and over the lowest depths in all creation. And he's ruling through his church. If, if Hebrews is about Christ's ascension as our high priest. Ephesians is about his ascension as our king and how he rules as king through his church. He ascends to the highest throne in all creation and then he rules and he conquers through his church, his body. My question is, well, how does he do this? Right, because we're just, we're just people. How is he ruling over all creation through the church. Well, we really have to study all of Ephesians to understand that, but we're going to get some highlights here. First, first, we're going to look at in what way he makes his rule known through his church. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, we learn that when Jesus ascended on high as Messiah, he sent gifts to the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, we looked at this in the descent sermon. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended, there's ascension language, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Well, what are those gifts that he gave to us that he rules through? Well, verse 11 tells us, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I want you to notice this. The way that Christ rules is through his church. And the way his rule is made visible in the church is through the gifts he sent when he ascended. The apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And each of these gifts, these, these vice rulers, vice in a good way, like you know, substitute or underneath, not vices in bad. These vice rulers underneath Christ, what are they? They're not military men, are they? They're not generals and colonels and majors and captains. These, these, these are not physical combatants. These rulers are people whose primary weapon is their mouth. What they proclaim. The apostles and prophets, they bore witness to the ascended Christ. The evangelists, what did they do? They evangelized. They, they proclaimed the message of the ascended Christ wherever they went. The shepherds and teachers, they shepherd the church of God through teaching the doctrines of the faith, the doctrines passed down from the apostles and prophets. And in so doing, the church, the body of Christ, is built up, built up by hearing the word proclaimed. The church is strengthened for or her ministry. Well, that ask the next question, right? Well, what's the church's ministry? Well, Paul has already told us this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says the ministry of the church is to make the wisdom of God known to all of creation. Paul showed us that. Ephesians 3 verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the church's job. Make the manifold wisdom of God, that's the gospel, make that known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, how in the world do we do that? Do we just shout really loud? Hey, rulers and authorities up there, Jesus is king. Well, yeah, yes, some, yes, partly. Next demon that we encounter, do we tell him God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you? No. That was a joke. Our message, that the gospel message, the manifold wisdom of God message to everyone, from the littlest toddler to the governor and to the devil himself, and those guys aren't the same person despite popular opinion, our message is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. And that means that he has sent his spirit to us, causing us to be born again into Christ. We saw that when he ascended on high as prophet. Jesus' Messiah means he has atoned for our sins. And that means that we no longer live in guilt. We no longer live in the fear of death. We no longer live in the fear of judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And last of all, Jesus as Messiah means he reigns on high as our eternal king who is Lord over all creation. Every last bit of it. So, for the church to make all of that known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, we must do more than just say those things are true. We must live as if those things are true. Because these rulers, and by rulers, he's talking about Satan and his demons here. These rulers expect something. Here's what they expect. They expect that you and I will always be in bondage to sin through our fear of death. That's who we're born into under Adam. That's what demons are expecting. 
These rulers believe that, that we are trapped in our sinful flesh, that we will always be distracted by the lust of the flesh, the, 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 the eyes and the pride of life, all the way until we die, always looking to please ourselves, always looking for satisfaction, never finding satisfaction, and so chasing one earthly delight to the next earthly delight, and never knowing satisfaction, never being content. That's what demons expect. That's what the, the rulers expect. But when we live out our lives differently, when, when we live out our lives as if we've been transformed by the gospel, because we have been transformed by the gospel, when we live our new lives in Christ, what we're doing is proclaiming to the cosmic powers and principalities over the present darkness. We proclaim to those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're not enslaved to sin. We've been made new. We have the Spirit. When we live our new lives in Christ, we proclaim. We're not afraid of death. because We have hope in the one who crucified our flesh and defeated death and resurrected and ascended into heaven to make atonement for our sins and who for all eternity will intercede for us. When we live new lives in Christ, we proclaim we are no longer ruled by the darkness, but we've been transformed and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, the one who sits at God's right hand. Living out your life in Christ, living in obedience to Christ, dying to sin, being holy as he is holy, that's how you proclaim the ascension of Messiah. And that's what we do together as a church. That's why in Hebrews 10, Let me just read for you Hebrews 10. I don't have this on the screen. This just came to my mind just now. Hebrews 10, 19. And this is the writer to the Hebrews reminding them of, the, of what benefit they have in Christ being in the holy places, having atoned for their sins. He tells them, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, your, your sins have been atoned for, you have a high priest, right? by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, in other words, he's about to give us the application of the ascension. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What's he saying there? You're new in Christ. Your, your proclamation now to those dark places is your life in Christ. So let's consider how do we stir one another up to live this new life in Christ in obedience to God. And he goes on. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the application of the ascension. Meet together as Christians. Encourage one another as Christians. 
spur one another on towards obedience in Christ as Christians together. Because you can't do it alone. In a moment, we're going to sing a song about Jesus' rule and about his reign over all things. We're going to sing that together as a church. We're going to sing, All Glory Be to Christ. But before we do that, I know that there's some of you in here this morning who are living as if Jesus has not ascended as high king. So when we sing this song, you will not be able to sing that song with a clear conscience. If you are right now living as if the Spirit has not been sent to you, as if atonement has not been made for for your sins, as if Jesus isn't king over you, in other words, if you have been chasing one pleasure to the next, one high to the next, if if you're living to be entertained, if you're if you're living to escape, or if you're, if you're living to make much of yourself, or if you're living addicted to some sin, friend, your very life right now is a denial of the ascension of Jesus. You're denying through your life that he ascended and made atonement and sent his spirit. And so what is, what is our response? Repent. It's that simple. Repent and believe. Receive his spirit who assures us of his reign. And repent and believe. He's the Christ over all, the king over all. And receive his forgiveness. Receive his blessing and worship with us with a clear conscience. So we're going to pray. And then as the band is coming up, we're going to take a moment of, of just silence together before we sing contemplate these things praise God for for raising up Jesus not just from the dead but into the holy of holies and thank him for his forgiveness that he gives you thank him for the spirit that he has sent you 